Up next, we have the January edition of Civic Conversations, brought to you by the League of Women Voters of Bloomington and Monroe County and the WFHB Local News. In today's episode, host Jim Allison discusses disinformation with our guest, Professor Betsy Grabe of the IU Media School. This is Civic Conversations, a podcast collaboration between the League of Women Voters of Bloomington, Monroe County, and WFHB. I'm Jim Allison, your host. Becky Hill is our producer, and you can hear us every month on WFHB at 93.1 and 98.1 FM. Today, we welcome Indiana University Professor Betsy Grabe of the Media School here in Bloomington, and thank you for being here, Professor Grabe. Thank you for having me. Let's talk about disinformation, which has become a huge problem in politics and elsewhere. And let's start with the very basic question, what is disinformation? I think it's best to think of disinformation in terms of um, a, a whole um, host of um, types of uh, false information. Um, and uh, I see most people like to distinguish disinformation and define it um, by the very idea of intent. Um, so an uh, honest mistake uh, that is uh, yeah, false would be viewed as misinformation, whereas a deliberate attempt to construct a lie and to mislead uh, people, that is, that, is, that is disinformation. So okay. that's more or less how it's been uh, defined. Okay, so what do people hope to gain by putting out false information, the big lie? What do they hope to gain? I think understanding the motives for disinformation is, is really understanding the motives for deception. And it comes down to two things, to sway political opinion um, or to make money, really. So um, we do get um, instances where people put out fake news stories to um, because they have a grudge against a large corporation, or we get public relations uh, firms, um, you know, playing loose with the truth to protect their clients. Um, but um, I think the the most clear examples of um, disinformation comes from um, a, a, a means of warfare that. Um, uh, where governments really use this information. Um, I, I think immediately about the, the Cold War, uh, where British intelligence surf, ser, service and um, the American CIA, and of course the Soviet KGB, uh, used, um, yeah, disinformation uh, um, as, a, as a means of waging war. Um, and the word disinformation really originates from tactics used uh, in the KGB's active measures program. Um, and so it's well-documented um, and a very long program of using disinformation for warfare. And the basic formula there is to sow division, you know, look for a potential piece of conflict in a country you're at war with, uh, create a lie around it, uh, wrap it around a bit of truth uh, and conceal yourself as the source and then uh, deny everything and, and be patient. Um, that, that's more or less the, the technique there. Um, in terms of money, um, it's sensationalism and um, fake news really uh, sells well. And so uh, one can make a lot of advertising money 
uh, out of um, sensational fake news. Um, so that's the other motivation when, when we look at the, the money side of it. Okay, so it's kind of a Swiss army knife. It can be put to many different uses. Oh, yeah. Uh, but these days, social media, of course, are considered a major culprit in the spread of disinformation. Why is this? I think there are the three things to think about here. Um, through algorithms, um, we can think of uh, media use as an uh, performing an act of news aggregation uh, without considering the credibility of the news um, that they aggregate. Um, and so any of us um, will be exposed to news through our Twitter feeds or other social media we use based on what the algorithm is choosing for us, based on our behavior on social media. Um, and it would take an extraordinary act of fact checking on our uh, side to verify the the integrity of this information. And, and the research shows that nobody's doing that. Um, so that's one point. The second one is that um, news stories via social media come to us from uh, our friends or people we are following, uh, or people we are following. So that, that comes with a kind of an endorsement or the appearance of an endorsement. Um, and we believe news that flow from our, from our friends more because it's coming from people we know or follow. And then the third thing is that social media sites are set up to highlight for us what is popular um, and what other people are reading. And that makes us more likely to go there as well. Um, at the same time, um, bots and other techniques uh, are, are uh, pushing certain stories and inflate uh, their popularity in, in social media. And I, I want to plug my colleagues at the Lottie School uh, of Informatics, Computing and Engineering. They've created remarkable tools that are, that, that are available for free to the public to detect the activity uh, of bots uh, in, in, in a diffusion network um, uh, on social media. Okay, so the public, of course, has responsibility for using such tools to combat disinformation. But what about companies like Twitter or Facebook? What are they doing about it? Initially, they were very slow to respond. Um, but recently, I think they're quite bold. Um, looking at what has happened uh, since the attack on, on uh, the, the Capitol um, and also the conversations via social media uh, threatening to kill journalists and hang man, um, Mike Pence. Um, social media companies have been very responsive. They've suspended accounts, including outgoing uh, President Trump's, um, and Amazon has ended their service as the host to another social media website, Parler, uh, because a lot of this conversation um, happened on Parler. Um, there are there's speculation that this boldness is because, um, yeah, there's a change of guards, a change of power from Republican to Democrats, outgoing um, president, and also um, the Senate and the House will be controlled by Democrats. So uh, these social media companies are more bold to act against the outgoing president and, and his followers. Okay, we all know about Fox News, but several news sources have popped up recently, like OAN, Newsman, and Parler. What can you tell us about the impact of these news sources? You mentioned Parler already. 
Yeah. Uh, they they serve niche audiences. Um, uh, so what I mean by that is they serve specific people with um, specific news or ideological leanings, um, and that uh, polarizes the, the United States even further. And what it creates are these echo chambers where we each just retreat into an echo chamber where we are just exposed to news that confirm our political beliefs. Uh, and that is very dangerous uh, in, in the end. Um, and the other thing I want to mention is that local news um, is in fairly bad shape at the at the moment. Um, since 2004, 1,300 communities have lost all local news. And this creates sprawling news deserts across the country. And uh, these new these news, uh, new news uh, platforms are eager to fill those gaps, uh, which creates uh, quite a bit of concern. Let's talk about your work. You and James Shanahan recently did a study on false narratives where you found that people with greater trust in democracy were less likely to believe in false narratives. How did you draw that conclusion? And were such people more exposed to false narratives or less exposed or neither? What can you tell us about that? Uh, people who have greater uh, faith in democracy uh, are also tend to be slightly less exposed to false narratives. And uh, they're um, surely a lot less likely to believe to believe these uh, narratives. Um, there's about a 18 percentage point difference in how likely uh, people who um, um, have no faith in democracy believe um, uh, false narratives compared to ones who have faith in democracy. So what we did was uh, we did five surveys um, during the election season last, last year, and we identified narratives that are clearly uh, false. And then the, the surveys ask people, first of all, whether they have heard of these narratives and then whether they believe them. And so we've tracked these, these narratives over time. Uh, new ones came up as, as we went along and, and that's how we were able to tell um, not only uh, what percentage of people believe it, um, but uh, yeah, what is their exposure to it um, as well. What about the influence of such things as age, dependence on social media and political party affiliation? Yeah, so age is a very interesting um, variable. And um, typically we, as researchers, have thought of older people to be the most vulnerable to disinformation. And this series of um, surveys actually showed that younger people, people between the ages of 18 and 25, are most vulnerable, regardless of their political um, orientation. Uh, so that is a, a new finding, and uh, we're going to dig uh, much deeper into our data set to try and figure out uh, what those vulnerabilities, uh, what explain those uh, vulnerabilities. So um, yeah, younger those younger voters were approximately 45% um, more likely to believe um, um, false narratives um, than, than the older age groups. Um, another thing that was kind of interesting was that um, the more one uses social media, the more likely you were to believe these, these narratives. And it seemed um, that 
um, YouTube was the, the biggest culprit. Um, so not only media use or, or social media use, but also the amount of time that you spend on uh, on social media use. And the the, the next finding um, th that I want to mention is 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 among um, the ones that I'm most concerned about, um, which shows that uh, people who follow politicians on social media uh, are also more vulnerable to false narratives um, than people who don't follow politicians. You know, the, the idea here that we elect people to represent us and if we follow them on social media, um, they make us more vulnerable to uh, disinformation, which is... Uh, shocking and, and worrisome. Uh -huh, that's um, very interesting. We also saw that um, political party affiliation um, doesn't really drive one's vulnerability to um, uh, disinformation. It depends on the narrative. If the narrative uh, is m originates more from a, uh, a, a political left um, stance, then um, yeah, politically right-leaning people are more likely to believe it and, and vice versa. Okay, now we come to the bottom line. How do we deal with disinformation or societal and political discourse? How do we deal with it? Yeah, <laughs> we'll, have to, we'll have to get to this on a number of fronts. Um, first of all, I think the, the detection, detection tools are very important. And as I've mentioned before, some of my colleagues at uh, IU are really doing a tremendous job of that. Um, so yeah, detect it so we can see where it's happening. Um, and then we need to do a lot more social science research to understand human vulnerability um, to, to disinformation. And if we use the tools and what we know about human vulnerability um, to design media literacy programs that we should introduce, um, you know, in primary school and, and, and have those run throughout um, high school uh, training. I think that is very important. And also based in our understanding of um, this information, how it functions and how we become vulnerable to it, we desperately um, need policy. And this policy will probably have to deal with the First Amendment. And the big question is if, if someone has the right to uh, deliberately disinform um, colleagues and fellow human beings uh, to the point of extreme polarization and violence. I mean, that is the, the big question. I, I'd say our uh, social fabric has been stretched by disinformation, um, but fortunately, uh, yeah, the social fabric behaves uh, a lot like spandex uh, fabric. So, um, you know, it, it stretches, um, but I think it's fair to say that we've seen some tears in it last week. And um, there's probably more of that coming uh, in the lead up to the inauguration. Well, thank you for that image. And thank you, Professor Grabe, for your discussion today. And thank you, audience, for listening to us on Civic Conversations. This is Jim Allison of the League of Women Voters, Bloomington, Monroe County. The League of Women Voters is a nonpartisan, grassroots, citizen-led organization that has fought since 1920 to improve our government and engage all citizens in the decisions that impact their lives. In February 2021, just next month, join us when we talk about gender equality 
with Susan Williams of the Indiana University School of Law.